God has said, you are free and you are to share the gospel with everyone. Then do we have the courage to suffer the consequences. 90% born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church will never share Jesus with another person. I went looking for tools from God. And what I found was the resurrected Christ himself. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First City Church. My name is Rick. I'm one of the ministers here. And we are in this series entitled The Insanity of Obedience. Before we get into that series... I want to add my welcome to Savannah's and thank you for being here today. We will uh, be starting this Christmas series starting next week. I want to thank Brittany Ribble and her army of volunteers who came in and decorated the auditorium and downstairs and all the children's areas and this stage. And uh, just to prepare for uh, our holiday season, Christmas is on us. I can't believe it's already the end of the year, right? And uh, But we'll start that next week. And, and I look forward to it. We, we have this series. Have you heard of the Advent Conspiracy? Anybody heard of the Advent Conspiracy? Okay. Conspiracy is such a big word. It makes it sound like somebody's trying to stamp out, you know, the birth of Jesus and how that relates to everything that the Christmas season is about. And it's not. The, Christmas, the Advent Conspiracy really is this move of churches to make sure that we put Christ back in Christmas. What are the holidays all about? This whole season of giving and sharing, and good news. How can we be very intentional about that? So we're going to be talking about it, and we'll show a video. We'll start that next week, and we have several things planned. We've got uh, 12 days of Christmas. We've got activities for you and your families to participate in, and things to do, and ways to give, and share, and have fun. We've got videos made by some of our little children in the back that you'll be seeing, and so we're excited about all that. Come back and join us next week as we get ready and prepare for the holiday season. So this series, The Insanity of Obedience, is all about people who have been called by God to go into all the world and to share the good news. All over our world today are men and women who courageously share the gospel of Christ. And I have a message prepared And maybe there's still an outline in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, But today, uh, I'm not going to be sharing this message. Uh, There's something else that I want to do. Last night, uh, a friend came into town. And uh, he's here with his son. And I want you to meet him. So today, if it's okay with you, instead of sharing a sermon, sharing a message... Uh, You're going to meet someone, and you're going to hear how the Word of God, the message of God, is lived out in his life. I want to go ahead and give you a warning. Uh, It's not really a warning. It's just that I want to give you a perspective. Uh, He doesn't doesn't like talking about himself. He's he's not real good at it. He's he's really humble. And he, he, he doesn't just go and tell everybody... What, what he does as if he's trying to draw attention to himself. 
You remember Mother Teresa was like that, right? I mean, if you would have gone up to Mother Teresa and if you would have said, do you realize how powerful of a life you live? She would have had no clue what you were talking about because <laughs> she wasn't trying to live powerfully. She was trying to qualify for being a servant of the Most High God. And God made her life powerful, right? And so today you're going to hear a message like that, not from Mother Teresa. That would, now if she would come down, that would be awesome. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you're going to hear from my friend. So if you're a fill-in-the-blank person and you want to know, but how am I going to fill in the blanks? Let me give them to you just as an intro. Number one is the partnership of obedience. When you read the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament and you just get caught up in all the stories of what all the men and women did who advanced the kingdom of God. Hebrews 11 gives you just this who's who list of all these heroes of men and women who did incredible things and gave their life to usher in the kingdom of God. But it ends with this sentence that says, but all those great men and women in your Old Testament never once, not for one minute, experienced what it was like to live in the kingdom of God because they were ushering it in. The Messiah had not come to the world. Men and women had not been redeemed by a Savior, but they believed it would happen. And so men like Abraham introduced to us that there is a God and he wants to interact with man. Moses introduced to us that he is the God, the one and only God who is alive forevermore, the great I am. And he demonstrated when he moved into Israel and to this, this, this promise, this promised land and where all the other gods that were before them were defeated the world came to know there is a God and his name is Jehovah. And then number two, the expanding of the kingdom of God. There's 500 years of silence between Old Testament and New Testament. And ushered in is this little baby by this servant girl named Mary. And born of a virgin. The one who left heaven and came down to earth. Jesus lived among us. Pointed the way to the Father, overcame death and sin, and won the victory. And he ushered in by his blood the kingdom of God. And now we are the recipients of it. When we hear the good news, all we have to do is say, Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Redeemer of man. And God partners with you and redeems you, saves you. From your sin. Our challenge is very different. Than the men and women that you'll read about in Hebrews 11. Our challenge is this. Let me just make it personal. My challenge is this. Being a part of the kingdom of God. And being saved. Feels so comfortable. That I find myself. Not having the urgency. To stay among the lost. I mean I'm so comfortable having my sins forgiven. And having peace and joy. When I put my head on my pillow at night. That I can if I choose. Spend all my energy trying to find the best Black Friday deal. I mean I can fill my life up. With all kinds of things. 
because I'm comfortable. But the message of this series has been this. God requires more out of us than he did the people before us. Is there evil existing in our world? Yes or no? Yes. Why? When we have been given the power to stamp out evil. When God gave us the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he said, go into all the world and transform it in the name of Jesus Christ. And I will be with you. So number three, there should be a commitment to stay among the lost. But when I evaluate my life, I'm far, I'm too embarrassed. If I were to have to sit down with God at my next staff meeting. And he said, tell me, Rick, what did you do this past week that put you out among the people who do not know me? And what did you do? What was it like? Have you shared the good news with anyone this week? I'm too embarrassed to say I spend too much of my time with people like me who are saved, loving life, living well, with healthy families. And so I'm really convicted. Today, I want you to meet a man who early in his life made a decision that he was going to give his life away to be a missionary for the kingdom of God. Would you welcome to the stage, good friend, Kim Rowell. Come on up, Kim. Hey, buddy, welcome. So Kim and I grew up as young boys in the big old metropolis of Valdosta, Georgia. And uh, his dad, was your dad a, a, an elder, a shepherd, a deacon? And my dad was in ministry and his dad was doing ministry. And we were inclined to mischief. We were behind the church building staying in trouble all the time. And in first service, you said, yeah, you could ask Suzanne and she could tell you. And I said, please don't do that. So my wife is sitting back there, and she can probably tell you she knows the good, bad, and ugly from both of us. But when we were sitting together, I mean, he just walked in to my office a couple of weeks ago and said that he would be coming back through. And, um, and he was like, can you believe? Look at us. Can you believe? And he called me Ricky Hazel. Ricky Hazel, you're a pastor in the kingdom of God. Yes, I am. And, and Kim Rao, you've given your life. Tell people how this started. Say hey to everybody. And Hello. Uh, began by saying it's an incredible honor to be here before you and share a little bit of my story with you. And uh, as Suzanne well knows, I was, uh, I was not a model child. I was a problem child. Actually, I was probably the model problem child. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I just, uh, not only mischievous, but I strayed way off the path. And, I, you know, my father and my mother were very patient with me. Um, 
One thing I remember about my dad is no matter how bad what I had done was, you know, there's always forgiveness. There was always a way back home. But I was difficult. And I, you know, when I think about these things, I'm ashamed of the way that I treated my mom and my dad when I was growing up. And when I was 17, when I turned 17, I decided to go in the Navy. And my dad signed for me. And I'm sure he was thinking, well, maybe they can straighten him out. And uh, I enjoyed the Navy. The Navy was great, um, incredible organization. Anybody that's in the military, um, you know, I have great appreciation for you. But I did my stint in the Navy and got out and went back home. And uh, it was not a career path for me. And I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And um, I remember a guy at our local church, a guy named Bob Bryson, invited me down on a mission trip to the Republic of Panama. And I thought, well, it was a medical mission. And I thought, well, I'm not a doctor, you know, but I can go down there and I can haul around some crates for them. You know, I can help them out somehow. So I said, all right, I'll go. And I went down, and we went down to uh, the border region between Panama and Colombia. And all this was by boat, no roads. And we go into a small village named Union Centena. And there's maybe 65, 70 people in this village all total, small village. And we go in, and we did the medical mission, and you see things you've never seen. And back then, there were screw worms, and there'd be children with, you know, volcanoes of larvae growing inside their head. And, you know, just being exposed to things that I had never imagined. And after all of that, we had a worship service, and the gospel was preached, and I believe it was 49 people that responded to the gospel. Um, You know, 49 people were added to Christ, were baptized in the Chimon River, and I just, I had never experienced it like that. You know, I had never seen the power of the gospel work. And uh, after that, a man there named Francisco Pimentel, um, he wanted me to come to his house the next day and eat lunch with him. And I did, and go in his house, and it's a hut, and it's packed dirt floor. The walls are made of cane tied together by vines, palm leaf roof. And uh, I go in, and their chairs are just pieces of stump, just pieces of log turned on in where they would sit. Their plates were just a piece of board, and on each board was a blob of boiled rice. No oil, nothing, just boiled rice and a blob on the board. And I remember Francisco stopped his family from eating, and he got another board, and he took a little bit of rice off of each board because that's all they had. What they had served was all they had. And um, I remember as I sat there eating that bland, boiled rice, I just thought, you know, here I am. We're middle class. My dad was a land developer. I'd never missed a meal. And I, I remember thinking, these people have nothing, literally nothing. And of the nothing that they have, they're willing to share it with me. And as a young man, it just, that just did something to me. It just got inside of me. And uh, 
<clears throat> I went back home, and I told my dad, Dad, I know what I want to do with my life. You know, what's that, son? I want to go to Panama. I want to preach, and I want to help those people. And my dad was like, yeah, 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 okay. Um, this will last for about two weeks, and then it'll be something else. And uh, it didn't last just a couple of weeks. I just kept on, Dad, this is what I want to do. Dad, this is what I want to do with my life. And finally, my dad said, all right, son, if that's what you want to do, how are you going to find, how do you plan to finance this venture? Like I said, my dad was a land developer, and at the time on the Georgia-Florida line, he was developing a, a housing development around a, a bass fishing pond called Pike's Pond. And uh, he had given my brother and my sister and myself each a waterfront lot there. And I can, I can see my dad right now, Rick, looking at the side of his face. And I, I said, Dad, if you'll let me, I'll sell my lot on Pike's Pond. And my dad just... Every muscle in his jaw just tightened up. I could see the veins and the tendons. And just, my dad just gritted his teeth and he said, all right, son, if that's what you want to do. And we put that property up for sale. I think early 80s, we got, I think, $14,000 for it. And I went to Panama. And out of that money, my dad sent me $500 a month. And when that uh, was used up, he just kept sending $500 a month. Then in the late 80s, I got the opportunity to come back to the U.S., get my formal education, and uh, went right back down and have been there ever since. How long? 34 years. 34 years. Wow. And what have you seen God do over the 34 years? You know, I've been incredibly blessed um, watching the work grow, watching people grow. You know, we've, I, I specifically target villages where no one else wants to go. As far down as we can go, um, work on both sides of the Panama-Columbia border. And you see entire villages be changed. Even the, the, even the feel of the village is changed when people give their lives to Christ. Um, and this, this one village in particular, Union Santana, became uh, just like family. To us, and I'm going to compliment you and your congregation because during the song service, I leaned over to my son Wheeler and I said, "So Wheeler, what do you think about this church?" And he said, "Dad, this feels like Union Santana. This feels like the village I grew up in. Everybody's like family." So yes, we are, right? Yes, we are. So. Uh, have you seen a lot of people give their life to Christ? I mean, if you were to think back, how many different villages have you been in? How many people would you say that you've witnessed transform their life, give their life to Christ? Just I've, I've worked in every province of Panama. We would call that a state. Um, so I have children in every province, spiritual children. I guess the total would be over 50 villages and thousands of people that I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with. Wow, that's amazing. So, and afterwards, if you want, Kim will go downstairs by our welcome desk, and he has his flyer, and you can learn more about it, and he has a card if you want to, if you're interested in all of that. So, 
people come to the States, or from the States, have they gone and joined you? I mean, people who are like, I can't do much. I've never done this before. Have you seen timid people come and take a step and say, but I want to do something in the kingdom of God? I want and watch their lives transform? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the one life that has been most transformed by the work in Panama has been mine. And when you just take that step, when you just take that step to go, it, it will change you. It will change you. Whether you go across the ocean, whether you go across the street, you will be changed by the power of God. We, uh, I was in a group conversation a couple of weeks ago with a young lady in our church, and, and she shared this verse of Scripture that's been on her mind and on her heart out of Proverbs that says that when it's within your power to do good, don't say to the person, well, come back tomorrow or another day. Don't say no when it is within your power to say yes. Meaning that there is an urgency and God is calling us. And there's a million reasons why people would say no, you know. Uh, But what God is saying is all I really care is the one reason for you to say yes. And that's, uh, I've asked you to do it. So things can't be always safe. Uh, No, Panama is challenging. There are all types of dangers. Um, you know, along the border region, you have FARC activity, which are they're the communist insurgents in Colombia that for 50 years, what we know as the Cold War has been their civil war, you know, and they've been kidnapping people and shooting up villages and trying to overthrow the duly elected government. Uh, there are natural dangers. We have a plethora of venomous snakes, um, jaguars. There are people that, you know, get eaten by wild animals. Uh, You look on our website, you'll see some people that have, you know, that have surgical repair from injuries from wild animals. There's, uh, you're going up flooded rivers sometimes, uh, going through the ocean. It's, um, you know, there's danger involved. But there's danger here as well. There is. And yet God has rescued you. I mean, it's like reading Mark 16. You will be among poisonous snakes and, and not be injured or diseases and not. God will protect you in all of these things. You have found this. Yeah. You've lived that to be true. Yeah, we, um, this first village that we began working in was about 60 miles through the Pacific Ocean from Panama City. And you had to go by boat. Um, in the beginning, we would just hitch rides on wooden fishing vessels. Um, you're six or seven miles off of the offshore, just going through the ocean. If we received an incredible blessing several years after we began. Um, a man named Scott Richardson gave us a small farming tractor because we were doing model farms and also gave us a, a boat an 18-foot aluminum military surplus duck boat with a 235-horsepower Evinrude on the back. And, man, we could we cut that sometimes seven- or eight-hour trip down to an hour and a half, two hours with that boat. Incredible blessing. But one evening, I was le- leaving the port of Coquita, and as soon as we got out into the ocean, you know, I thought we're going to be able to zip across and we'll get there before, you know, before it's too dark, we'll get to the port of Chimon. 
And we got out into the ocean, and a squall blew up. And there were waves coming over the side of the boat, waves coming over the front of the boat, and it was dark, uh, you know. And all of a sudden, a wave, a big wave, came over the back of the boat. And that heavy motor and all that water in the back of the boat, the boat just did this. In three seconds, it was gone. We were in the water at night in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, no life jackets. And I remember, you know, we're looking for something to grab onto. And uh, the first thing I saw since we were taking back supplies was a big bundle of toilet paper that was floating. So I grabbed onto that. And then it wasn't long before my mind started, you know, the, the gears were turning. And I was thinking, you know, this, this isn't going to last long. This is going to get waterlogged. <laughs> And then it's going to sink and me with it, you know. And I, uh, a week before, you know, God's grace and providence, a week before, a fellow laborer in the gospel had come down, Vince Payne, and he brought me a new handheld Uniden submersible marine radio. To this day, Rick, I guarantee you I remember packing this radio in my duffel bag in the boat. But... For some reason, after we're in the water for about 15 minutes, I touch my side and my radio is clipped onto my belt. So I pull it off my belt. Do you belt. hear that? Do you hear everybody going, hmm? It's almost like you want to say, okay, God is good. Right? God I mean, you good. can just say it out loud. God is good. Amen? So I, I turn that little dial and a little blue light comes on and I'm thinking, all right, I got a radio. That was, that was the second thing that I firmly believe God did for us. The first thing is this boat, he had put it together, built plywood benches with lift-up tops, and inside of those benches there were seven 11-gallon fuel containers, the kind that you plug into an outboard motor, and they were strapped down and the straps screwed into the plywood. Somehow as that boat sank, two of those fuel canisters popped loose and bloop, bloop, popped up to the surface. And Yeki, the young man from the village that was with me, grabbed one and I grabbed the other. And, uh, you know, we, at least we knew we were going to be okay for a while. So I get the radio and I start calling Servicio Maritimo, Servicio Maritimo, which is the Coast Guard, the Panamanian Coast Guard. And the Panamanian Coast Guard comes on, and I say, hey, look, our boat just went down. We're in a storm out here, you know, and, and uh, we're in the water. And they're like, your boat swamped or it sank? I said, it sank. It's gone. We're in the water. And they said, yeah, so if your boat sank, how are you talking to us on the radio? <laughs> and I said, this is a unit and handheld submersible marine radio. <laughs> And uh, they were like, ah, they didn't believe us. So about this time, this guy comes over the radio, a guy named Rompe, and he's a fisherman in the village of Chiman. He runs one of these big wooden commercial fishing boats. And he comes on and he starts cursing them and he says, look, I live in the village of Chiman and that guy's a missionary in my village and I know him and if he says he's in the water, he's in the water and you better go get him. And, <laughs> So they're like, okay, okay. They ask him for his boat's registration number, you know, and then they, they're going to come look for us. 
So it's still at night. It's still stormy, and and um, they're looking for us. And after a couple of hours of that, they come over the radio, and we're calling off the search. You know, we'll pick up the search in the morning when we can see. And there, there are people that have gone down in these waters in the daytime, and they're not found. You know, at the nighttime, it, it would be impossible. And I remember telling them, if you wait until in the morning, there's not going to be anything to search for. And they said, there's nothing we can do. We're calling off the search. I remember Nyeki and I just looked at each other for a long time. Neither one of us said anything. But after, I don't know, it must have been 10 or 15 minutes, a new voice came over the radio and said, Estamos llamando los náufragos. Llamando a los náufragos. We are calling for the shipwrecked people. And I answer, you know, all of this in Spanish and said, yes, this is us. We're, we're, we're the ones. And they said, this is the USS Five Forks. And we are anchored in the Gulf of Panama. And we're weighing anchor and we're coming to look for you. And we will not stop our search until we have found you. Do you understand? Yes, sir, we understand. I said, I want to repeat that. We're weighing anchor. We're coming to look for you, and we will not stop until we find you. Do you understand? Yes, sir, we understand. So they said, okay, we're going to send up a flare, and we want you to look for it. And they did, great big flare, um, and uh, we, you know, yes, we can see it. And they said, okay, which direction we need, do we need to go to get to you? And I, I, I remember the words, as, you know, as I said them, uh, I said, you need to come more towards us. And they just calmly, without rebuking me, they said, um, you know, whoever's on the radio said, okay, can you tell us, do we need to go out to, to sea or in towards the coast? And I said, I don't know. We can't see. It's dark. You know, and I stopped again to look around. And I look around, and it's by this time it stopped raining. The clouds are just beginning to clear. Um, and I, I, on the horizon, I could make out four little stars. And I recognized a constellation. And I said, is there anybody on board that understands anything about astronomy? And they said, uh, yeah. And I, I, I said, there's a constellation called the Southern Cross. And it's low on the horizon. And your flare went up straight in front of us. And that constellation is straight behind us. So if you go towards that constellation, then you're coming towards us. And they said, okay, you guys hang on. Don't get separated. We are coming to get you. And, you know, as things happen, uh, you know, while we're waiting, the battery on our radio dies. So we can no longer tell them if they're getting closer or farther away, but we could see the lights of the boat. We could see it coming closer and closer. And then all of a sudden it turned around and disappeared back over the horizon. And by this time we're, we're, we're not talking to each other. We're just, you know, there's nothing to say. 
And uh, then, you know, we see the lights again. And they get closer and closer this time. And then they turn around and disappear over the horizon. We can't say anything. We can't communicate. And a third time, and they're even closer this time. Later we found out that the captain of that vessel, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Lockerbie, was doing a, uh, a search pattern back and forth, you know, straining the water where they knew we would be. And, you know, the, I guess the fourth or fifth time, Rick, the lights got closer and closer till we could make out what they were. And they were these huge searchlights, like, you know, that big around. And there were, I guess, five of them going on this vessel. And they came so close to us, we could feel the heat from those lights on our faces. And then we heard yelling, you know, and cheering. And we knew that we had been found. We knew that we'd been found. So they come alongside and, you know, there are guys coming down the rope ladder. Huge, huge vessel. Like probably five stories tall. And... um you know, they, they came down and they grabbed us and pulled us out of the water and put blankets on us and patted us on the back and said, you did it, you did it. And we're like, we did it, you did it. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I told Rick, there's nothing like the feeling of being lost. Nothing. And there is nothing like the feeling of being found, being saved. And, uh, you know, there's something I'm going to add, Rick, that I, uh, I didn't add the last time I told this story. All of our conversation was in Spanish. There were no uh, Americans on board that vessel that spoke Spanish. There happened to be four sailors from Peru that were on a training program, an exchange training program with the U.S. Army. They are the ones that had been monitoring the radio. Um, you talk about God taking care of you. God has taken care of me. Um, that shirt there, son? Yeah. So, um, although I was in the Navy, I have great respect for the people of the U.S. Army. This is the shirt that they put on me when they pulled me out of the water. And this is their vessel, the USS Five Forks. And I'll leave that here for any of you to, to look at if you want. You know, I, um, I hear stories like this, I can't quit crying, especially when you pull out that shirt. I, um, Suzanne and I remember when our son was in a car accident and, um, and he was, he had no vital signs. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't uh, responding and, and somebody, um, got his phone when his car went off the interstate and hit a tree and totaled out and, and his phone flew out of the car and, and they picked up his phone, and it said home, and they called him. 
<clears throat> so I ended up going there, and I got there about the same time the ambulance did, and and um, they were trying to get me away from him, you know, just because of the situation and what they had to do. And I wanted to know everything going on. And I'm like, is he going to be okay? And they're like, well, we've seen worse. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I know you've seen worse, but is he going to be okay? And, um, and I turned around <clears throat> in time to watch them stick the EpiPen through his heart. And, um, you know, when he came alive and yelled out my name. And then... They did the same thing. They cut the shirt off of him so they could get to him. And he kept that shirt forever because he wanted to remember the day God rescued him. I think you're right. And for me, that's what is grabbing my heart. That if I'm not careful, I can easily drown out the voices of those who are screaming. That we're drowning and we need we need a new life. We're looking for something. This auditorium, if you look around, is full of a lot of young people. I'm probably one of the oldest people in this room. Except for a few people, Leon. You know, like you and I. <laughs> right? I'm just... What God can do with the people sitting in this room, in this community, if God can use you to reach thousands then surely all of us in this city can reach hundreds. And, and what I pray is as you hear Kim's story and how God has been good to him and he rescued you from one life and gave you a brand new life and instantly you're like, that's what I want to do. And for 34 years, you've just been sharing the good news and God has been so faithful you know, to you. And I'm grateful for you. And, and what you've done for, for just one person who said yes when it would have been easy just to say no. Just to live, you know, on the, on the bank of a bass pond in South Georgia. And you gave that up to watch people give their lives to Jesus. Thank you. Would you tell thank you. him thank you? Thank you. Point four on your outline, it just says there, there has to be a call to action. At some point, we each will make a decision. Do I want a piece of that or not? You mentioned in the first service this one verse that really grabs your attention about uh, the message of reconciliation. Yeah, Paul, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that if we have been reconciled to God that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's, it's a responsibility. Uh, he, he goes on to say this, this message has been placed in your hands. If you've been reconciled to God, you are a minister of reconciliation. You're to share that message, and you have become, Paul says, ambassadors of Christ. God is making his plea to the world through you. When I was in the water, Rick, the thing that kept me holding on was knowing that there were people coming to look for me. And if you let people in your community know about how much you love them, how much you care about them, and that you're looking for them, you know, you're, you're trying to 
help bring them to a better life, that's going to give them hope so that they can hold on until they're saved. And I just encourage you, uh, you know, once you take that first step, God is just going to, he's going to grab you, man, and you're, you're not going to be able to shake it off. Uh, you got to go, you know. It, you don't have to go across the ocean. You can go across the street, but you got to go, and you got to share your faith. And if you've been reconciled, then it's your duty to help other people be reconciled. You are ministers of the gospel, each and every one of you. You are the ambassadors of Christ. That is such a good and simple message. If they know you're coming, it will give them hope to hang on. So I gave four bullet points, and if you want to fill them out, and maybe this is the point where I want you to decide, what is the Word of God saying to you in your heart right now? We didn't really give you a a sermon today. You've got to see a witness, a testimony, one person who said yes. There were obstacles. And the four bullet points are, number one, we need to build community in the community. It's one thing to build community among ourselves in a church, but it's something very different to build community out in the community. A sense of what we have here, family, out there. Number two, establish mutual trust in the city. In our highly politically charged world, Republicans don't trust Democrats and they don't, you know, and vice versa. Races, we're so polarized. It's embarrassing even to mention all the different ways that it shows itself. But at some point, somebody has to just humble themselves and say, we're here only because we want to be a blessing to you and build mutual trust. Number three, We need to overcome unhealthy and ungodly obstacles. And there are going to be a lot of reasons to say no. And it's like, well, it's not going to be safe. It's not going to be the easiest. In the first service, you also shared something I thought was very interesting to hear coming out of your mouth, which was, I think it's harder in America to walk across the street than it was for me to go across the ocean and share the good news. Absolutely. Because there's such a stigma you Christians are crazy, you're wild, there's psychologically, and, and, and keep that in your home, don't bring it out here or into our business. And there are going to be a lot of unhealthy and ungodly obstacles that will be in our way. But we've got to push through anyway with the good news. And then number four, probably the most important, stay on our faces in prayer before God. Because God is what will sustain us. He's what puts the message on our heart. And so now I just want to give this message back to you. The insanity of obedience just says, it may not be the easiest thing, but I'm going to go in the name of Jesus. I may not feel qualified. You may be like me and Kim and say, I would be the last person. God would ever use in his kingdom just because of the decisions I've made. You're not. You're the one God has been waiting on. He brought you here today to hear a message, to give you a vision of what he wants to do with your life. 
And I'm asking you to say yes. We're going to go into this time of communion. We do this every week. If you're serving, thank you. You can go to the back and be prepared. We just passed down these two simple emblems. It was established, given to us from Jesus to his apostles and from the apostles to the small churches and the small churches around the world. For 2,000 years, people have been participating on every Sunday. This very simple symbol of the amazing grace of God. This unleavened bread and this grape juice in, in real small increments. It's not about how much you will eat and drink. It's the symbol that God wants to be in you and work through you to do something greater. So as you eat and drink, the first thing you proclaim is that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's your Messiah. And you're telling him thank you. And the second thing that you're proclaiming is, I now want to join you in this ministry of reconciliation so that everyone we know can know the good news that there is heaven and God awaits us and we will be forever with him. I'm glad you were here today. Kim will meet you downstairs when this is all over. If you would like to talk with him and hear more about his ministry, which I would encourage you to do. Pray with me as we go into this time. Lord God, we are so grateful for everything that you have done for us. Your amazing grace overwhelms us. Your love for us through all of our sin, all of our dysfunction, all of our poor decisions. It's almost as if we try hard to run away, but you just won't let us go. You love us too much. And so, Lord, when we finally give, when we finally surrender, you celebrate. You say all of heaven rejoices when we finally say to you, take my life, Lord God, and use it for your purposes. As we eat and drink today, we celebrate Jesus. We want to tell you thank you for what you've done for us. And Lord God, if it's okay, use us to share the good news with people who do not know you. And we will do that in your name. Amen.